One of the perhaps most common allegations or criticisms that non-Christians make of the Christian church is that the church is just all about money. How many of you have heard that? It's all about money. Now, of course, there are profiteers in and among Christians. There are those that would seek to gain financially from their role as clergymen or denominational leaders or Christians. We know that to be true. But when we look to the word of God, we know the word of God has a lot to say about money, so we're not afraid to preach about money. To not preach about money, to not talk about money, is to not preach the full counsel of God's word. And, and yet as we <clears throat> consider the broader culture within which we're in, it seems to me that while there are religious profiteers in the church and even churches that for some crazy reason have become compromised because they take government funds. The fact is, is that as I, as I listen to people outside the church, it seemed to be a whole lot more about money than almost any Christian I know. Politicians are constantly making decisions based upon money. Businesses make decisions based upon money. The world talks a lot about money. Uh, they talk a whole lot more about money and focus a whole lot more on money than than, than the worst Christian church I've ever been in. And today we want to look at Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, and expose some individuals, we'll call them charlatans, who are seeking to profit off of religion. You'll rem remember that last week I, I told you we're going to do a two-part series on Acts 19, Last week, we talked about charlatans who arise from within the religious community. Today, we're going to talk about those that would capitalize upon their association with religion for financial gain and extract some important lessons that I think are very, very timely given the circumstances we find ourselves in in the present. So join me in Acts chapter 19, Verses 21 through 41, the passage begins as such. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and to Kai and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. This is these two verses simply serve as a geographical point of interest for us. It orients us to Paul's missionary journeys, not specifically relevant to our sermon this morning. But one thing that I appreciate about Paul, which we see time and time again, is despite the fact that he was a, an incredible minister of the gospel and that he wasn't afraid to acknowledge there was a hierarchy among early missionaries, this older man was actively involved in training younger men and releasing them without breathing down their neck to do the work of the ministry. And we can appreciate that about him. And perhaps that'll come up at some point later in our study of, of the book of Acts. But what I would like us to focus primarily on is upon what we read in verses 23 and following. 
And there we're going to learn the following fact, that faithful gospel proclamation will put you at risk because faithful gospel proclamation puts charlatans at risk. When you faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will step on some toes. And when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and specifically stand in the way of those that would profit wrongly off religion, expect to be attacked. Why is this the case? Because sin is big business. If you want to understand anything about economics in a fallen world, you need to understand first and foremost that sin is very, very, very big business. And the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts sin head on. So when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, you're seeking to lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're also shaping and reshaping culture. You're confronting the way people act. You're confronting the way people spend. Sin is very big business. And faithful proclamation is going to put you in the crosshairs of charlatans. Faithful proclamation must, by necessity, confront those that would profit off of sin. And we have a classic example of this, which has repeated itself time and time again throughout history, beginning with verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. You'll know that that is one of the early definitions or titles applied to what we now call Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So we have an individual identified for us by name who had a business making silver idols so that the people in Ephesus could worship the Greek god Artemis, who's sometimes also known as Diana. It's considered a female goddess. So instead of being converted and repenting of his ways and putting aside his idolatry, he hatches a plan. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with their hands are not gods. <gasps> Gasp. Can you believe it? It's confronting idolatry. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, might be spoken of negatively in other words, but also, and this is where he, he starts to really schmooze, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence as if he really cared. She whom all Asia and the world worship. <clears throat> Bit of exaggeration there, wouldn't you say? So Paul is faithfully preaching the gospel. Many others are faithfully preaching the gospel. Paul had released others to do so. But as he preaches against, for example, the second commandment, 
not to worship graven images, pretty basic stuff. He finds himself in the crosshairs of a religious profiteer. And so he gets all his buddies together and he identifies the financial implications of their choices. He diminishes this basic foundational truth, the second commandment, makes it look like, like what kind of a fool would not acknowledge there are a multiplicity of gods? Can you believe it? He's preaching monotheism. And then fluffs up and puffs up Artemis worship as if it's the be all and end all. So Artemis, as I mentioned already, was a Greek goddess, a pretty expansive Greek goddess. She had all sorts of She was thought to have all sorts of powers over the natural world, over fertility, over childbirth, all sorts of things, over the the hunt. And Demetrius made his living selling idols to, to people to worship this God. So the Christian preachers come in, and what are they essentially doing? They are affecting the profit margins. So because they affect the profit margins, the pagans gang up on them. And I think there are two or three notable accusations that they levy against the Christians. And I'm going to emphasize these, just kind of bring them out of the text a little more and put them in front of you, because it seems to me that these accusations in seminal form have been repackaged in the modern world. And it's the same kind of accusations that are often made against Christians today. The first one is that Christianity has a negative effect on their financial interests, has a negative effect on their financial interests. When you speak against lies, against tyranny, against whatever the ideology is of the day, we'll flesh this out a little bit more with some illustrations. A lot of people won't like it because it affects their financial interests. Secondly, one of the tactics of these individuals is by fluffing up, if you will, Artemis's reputation and making it sound, this financial profiteer is making it sound as if he actually cares about the religious side of things. And it's doubtful that he does. He's really just all about the money. But he's, he's pretending, as much as Artemis worship is a false religion, he's pretending to be a devotee. But really, it's just about the money, the profit that he's making. And the third thing is he scoffs at what should be a very basic understanding of Christianity. He scoffs and ridicules the idea of monotheism, that there there is one God and frames it up as a problem. Monotheism is a problem. Polytheism, that's a good thing, but monotheism... Is a problem. And so he hatches a plan to deal with these pesky Christians, this fringe minority Christians, if you will. You'll notice that his argumentation is not intellectual. There's no religious debate. There's no true wrestling with the claims of Christianity vis-a-vis Greek goddess worship. It's rather an emotional, irrational, guttural response. It's a response based on anger. It's not like, hey guys, you know what? Did you hear what these Christians are doing? Let's put together a panel and debate them. 
Let's sit down and have a conversation. Let's try to understand where they're coming from. He doesn't want to understand where they're coming from because that would infringe upon their financial profits. Now, it's often been said that if you want to know what motivates the ungodly, follow the money trail. You've all heard that, right? Follow the money trail. And it's true because as I mentioned earlier, sin is big business. Let's just think about this for a moment. Think of all of the industries that profit off of sin. Now, there are many industries that exist because of sin. Locksmithing, firefighting, physicians. In a broken world, there's many, many industries that exist because of the effects of sin. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about businesses and industries that exist specifically to profit off of sin. There are many that come to mind. Strip clubs, they exist to profit off of sin. Cannabis shops, weed shops, they exist to profit off of sin. Gender reassignment clinics, they profit off of sin. Pharmacies selling the morning after pill. They exist to profit off of sin. The abortion industry, it's big money to abort babies. They profit off of sin. Pornographers profiting off of sin. Some Hollywood films profiting off of sin. Gambling establishments profiting off of sin. Even much of modern Western education through which teachers and educators and professors peddle destructive worldviews, they're profiting off of sin. You're paying tuition and they're profiting off of sin. And we could go on and on and on and on. So imagine that you were actually so bold as a Christian to confront some of these industries. What do you think might happen? What would happen if, you know, God forbid we spoke out against the porn industry against the cannabis industry. People make their money there. Against the casino. Oh yeah, that's that's big business for Windsor. Let's not step on too many toes here. If we spoke against gender reassignment surgery, you might think, well, these these are just clashes of worldviews. Well, they are. But you're also stepping on people's desire to profiteer off of these businesses financially. I mean, imagine how angry they would get if you confronted their lies, their idolatry, their profits, if you put them out of business. Thank God, by the way, that the first weed store that opened in Windsor is now closed. I hope they all closed down. But imagine if you actually start to speak out against these things. You want to upset a sinner, reduce their profits they're making off of sin. And you're going to be in for some trouble. Now, one of the most notable, disgusting, sinful industries in our current culture is the so-called sexual orientation and gender identity, SOGI industry. We often talk about the disgusting nature of chopping parts off of children or hormone treatments. But have you thought about the financial implications of the soji industry. This week I watched a a video of an interview 
between an investment banker and Tucker Carlson. And this individual in the United States revealed that the current economic profit, if you will, the value of the industry for the Soji industry is currently in the United States estimated to be $2.93 billion. And by 2030, as more people go and get parts chopped off, is supposed to rise to a whopping 7.5 billion US dollars. Now you start speaking out against child mutilation. You're not just speaking out against surgeries, you're speaking out against profit margins. There's big money to be made off of these sorts of things. And do you really think for a moment that these fiends aren't going to, are gonna just fade into the woodwork? when they're profiting off of confused people? Do you really think they're not going to influence what's taught in our universities and schools and what comes out of the mouths of our politicians? Like, are we really that naive not to think that there's connections between those that profit off these industries and those we elect into office, office to supposedly represent us? The fact of the matter is this. If you're going to be a faithful Christian in 2023, there are a whole boatload of Demetriuses that are gonna come after you, that are gonna come after you. You need to brace yourself for that. Now, of course, God's economic plans always work. This is the crazy thing. If, if the social order would simply submit itself to God's economic plans, everyone would profit and it would be a, a much, much better world. But humanity is innately selfish. And instead of following God's financial plans, they you know, concoct their own. I would encourage you, by the way, as a Christian, most of us probably took financial courses or economic courses in our educational processes, or at least we have some notion of how economies are supposed to work because we're listening to politicians. I would encourage you, if you've never done so, to study biblical economics because they actually work, surprise, surprise. Giving, saving, spending, not going into debt, gathering money for, your, for future generations, these these basic economic principles actually work. They actually stabilize a society and a culture. We need to think about these things so we, we have a proper understanding of biblical economics. But typical of evildoers, then and now, when they're confronted with their immorality, they try to take the high, high, high moral ground. Have you noticed this? When you, it's this tactic. When, when you confront the evildoer, instead of repenting, they try to position themselves above you and take the moral high ground. Think of a, a battlefield and armies are fighting and there's a hill in the middle of the battlefield. Well, both armies want to get to the top of the hill so they can position themselves to shoot down and have victory over their opponents. That's what we call the, the high ground in, in, in warfare. What I, when I say the moral high ground, what I'm saying is that evildoers often will do that. They'll try to position themselves above you. They'll pontificate down to you. They will actually recreate and redefine your moral language to make you look like the bad guy. And so here we have a classic example of that where they come together. It's like, oh, can you believe these Christians? They're actually teaching there's one God. They're, they're infringing upon our financial profits. So as we study this a little bit further, what I, what I think would be of benefit to us 
is to think a little bit more about the tactics of evildoers. So when we are preaching the gospel, it's important for us to know the tactics of our opponents. And the interesting thing is they don't really change from generation to generation. They're they're actually pretty predictable. They're not very original. The same basic tactics that are employed by Demetrius and his buddies continue to be, be employed against faithful preachers of the gospel today. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. So that the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among their crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Note that word, confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. (laughs) What? So you're literally part of a riot and you're not even sure why you're part of a riot? Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. And when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all just cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So let's not listen to our opponents. Let's just keep shouting louder and louder the same line over and over again. In other words, if we can breed irrationality, if we can breed confusion, if we can breed chaos, If we can just get people all emotionally worked up, we'll win. So tactic number one, rile up the crowds. Convince people that Christians are bad. They're destructive. They're bad for you. They're bad for culture. They're bad. They're bad. They're bad. Just keep saying that over and over again. Or in the modern world, they're hateful. They're far right. They're extremists. They're ultra conservative. Just rile up the crowds. Don't, don't actually have a meaningful discussion about anything. So, so confusion to the point, uh, what are we even talking about now? What, what is the issue on the table? Just pile on all sorts of issues. So confusion, shout so loud that your opponents cannot be heard. Look at our current culture. You protest, you're trying to protest, and, and now it's, it's commonplace for there to always be counter-protesters. So nobody really even has an opportunity to meaningfully share their views because there's always counter-protesters trying to shout in your face, shout you down, silence you. And then just say the same thing over and over again, whether it has any meaningful, thoughtful logic to it. Just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Just keep repeating the same lines. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just keep saying it over and over again. If you say it long enough, even though there's no substance to it, maybe people actually believe it. Right? So you see the tactics? Does this sound familiar to you? The same kind of thing takes place and is taking place in all the woke cultural wars of our day. People aren't having meaningful conversations, yelling past each other, accusations are flying. And our opponents love to take the moral high ground and make Christians look like they're really, really bad people. We'll come back to that. Now, of course, they finally grow quiet as a local politician takes the stage, because everyone wants to schmooze with the politicians, right? 
who, who interestingly holds their views, but he's a politician, so he's playing both sides. And he suggests maybe the courts are better places to settle these disputes. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, the Bible says, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? It's like, who doesn't, who among us doesn't acknowledge that Artemis is the goddess of all goddesses? So he's, he's, he's trying to play both sides. He's acknowledging the falsehood of their religion. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So this is both good and bad, because the politician doesn't correct the falsehood, but at least he brings a bit of a truce, and God obviously uses him so these Christians live to preach another day. Right? So we can ultimately trust in the Lord to vindicate us, even in the midst of a seemingly impossible situation, in the midst of all this commotion. God, through this slick politician, the town clerk as he's called, allows them to preach another day. So here are three take-homes, which I've already stated in different ways, but I want to reiterate to you three take-homes for you to consider. The first one is, be aware, be awake, if you will, of those who would make their living from falsehood, which, newsflash, is almost everyone outside of the Christian church in some way, shape, or form. And certainly almost everyone in high office and almost everyone who's paid in some way, shape, or form by government bureaucrats. Okay? So you just need to be aware of that. We officially are a Christian nation, it's still all written all through our literature and our constitution and our parliament buildings. But the de facto reality is we're an anti-Christian nation. And when we preach the truth against the lies, there's going to be a lot of pushback. There's going to be plenty of venom spit at us. This also explains, by the way, have you noticed this? Let's take Soji again sexual orientation, gender identity discussions. Have you noticed that when you're maybe standing in the backyard and just talking to Joe Blow, your neighbor, that the vast majority of people don't even agree with this? They think it's ridiculous. They think it's nonsense. In fact, you talk to, if you talk to 100 Canadians, probably 95 plus percent of them say, yeah, we kind of agree with you. Very, very few speak out against it. So it's like, why then are these ideologies dominating our society when anecdotally, it seems that most people think it's nonsense? Because the people with the power are profiting off of these ideologies. They're profiting off of it. And they're the ones with the microphones. 
They're the ones that are in charge of legislation. They're the ones running our universities or in high offices over various public institutions. And it's because the average person sees it as nonsense, but the elite are making money off of these things. Secondly, expect them to attack you and seek to destroy you. There's very, very, very little interest in disputing the issues. Even during the last few years, I wrote some letters to health officials asking for evidence on some of the mandates. They they never respond. They never respond. You don't want to have a conversation? Like if if you feel you're in the right, why don't you inform me? But you're just met with silence. You might put up your hand in a university class. Maybe your professor is barking on about Marxism. Okay, I, I want to defend that. This, you, better, you better be quiet. This is not a safe environment. It's not a safe place for that kind of discussion. People might feel unsafe. See, they're taking the moral high ground. You call people to conform to God's creational norms. You're a hater. You're hateful. Okay, what does that mean? You're phobic. And... And when they repeat those things over and over again, you might even start to believe them. I don't want to be called phobic. I don't want to be called hateful. You know, I recall when I was in my youth that there was times when the public debates would be established. So like a Christian apologist would go to the University of Western Ontario and they'd advertise it. You know, Dr. So-and-so is going to debate Dr. So-and-so, the atheist. That doesn't seem to happen much anymore, does it? There's no meaningful debate. There's no dialogue. There's no opportunity for public verbal sparring on these issues. As soon as you preach the truth, as soon as you confront the lies, you're a far-right extremist when you confront the heathen agenda. So this week, mildly humorous, but also mildly irritating, someone pointed out that if you go to Wikipedia, you can do this after the sermon, preferably. Um, and you punch in Christian nationalism. Ooh, that's a bad word. Christian nationalism. And you scroll down through the Wikipedia's descriptions of Christian nationalism, which are largely inadequate. You'll come to Christian nationalism in Canada. And if you read through the section on Canada, it says, oh, groups like the Liberty Coalition Canada and some pastors and that, that spoke out against lockdowns are Christian nationalists. And it calls them ultra-conservative views. They're holding ultra-conservative views. And then when you click on the footnote, an article opens, and guess whose picture's in it? (laughs) Along with some other politicians. So so you're an ultra-conservative views. It's one thing to have conservative views, it's one thing to be far right, but imagine being ultra conservative. Oh, scary guy. He's probably a clan member too, right? And, and this is the kind of rhetoric that we see in, in our culture. Rather than having conversations about it, I'll debate you. I'll have a conversation about these issues. I podcast. You can pick my podcasts apart. No, no, no. This guy's a bad guy. He's dangerous because guess what? He holds to views that people have held since creation up to about 10 years ago. But you see how culture is moving in this direction? Someone said to me this week, I can't remember who it was. 
in the last 10 years, that which most of, most of humanity and even all the major world religions have held to be true. For example, there are men and women. In the last 10 years, suddenly you're a, a lunatic. You're ultra conservative. You're, you're an extremist. If you hold those basic views, it's like, hey, are you kidding me? Thousands of years and just the last 10, we decided to change it up and we're the nut jobs. But we should expect more of that. And I suspect whether it gets better or not, I don't know. There might be reformation or reform. I pray for it. I, I hope for it. But it'll probably get worse before it gets better. So be aware of it. Don't let it slow you down. Spot the lies. Uh, third, we can be assured that God will vindicate all of those of us that are faithful to the proclamation of the gospel, his messengers. Not just preachers, but all of us who stand for truth and righteousness. He'll either do it through civil leaders. Once in a while, you'll have a civil leader that says, you know what, let's, let's just calm things down and let's take this to the courts and the courts will decide. Now, of course, we know that courts don't decide what's right and wrong. God's laws decide what's right and wrong. So whether you win or lose in the courts doesn't mean you're right or wrong, but it is kind of nice when the courts on occasion do side with that which is right. And that's what we hope and pray for, even in our attempts to see judicial reform. So either through civil leaders or courts or through the miracles of God, which we see time and time again in Acts, or ultimately in heaven. So at the end of the day, guess who wins? The church wins. And why do we win? Because Christ wins. So in spite of the angst of the moment, the anxiety, the challenges, the difficulties, we can be assured that God will vindicate us. So don't make the mistake of backing down. Do not back down. Persevere, be faithful, preach the truth, and let God do what he is going to do. You see, we serve a good God and he is in control of all things. And so we neither need to fear nor tolerate charlatans. We don't need to fear them. Don't let them silence you. Nor do we need to tolerate them. We should speak the truth against the lies. So may I want to encourage you as you enter into another week, battling it out for the Lord, never back down, preach the truth, and then let God do what only God can do. All right? So may this galvanize us and encourage us in our faith.